It happened just a few hundred yards from this very spot. It was last millennium. I was a seminary student getting my master's, and along with me, a number of my friends decided to play football. Uh, Flag football, we joined with uh, the intramural program here at the university, and uh, just over yonder, over that way, a few hundred yards, it was winter, of course, uh, we chose a name for our team. We called ourselves the Moombas. And I asked uh, my friend who suggested that, he says, what does that mean? He said, well, they use it in Australia, and roughly translated, it means everybody have a good time. That sounds like our football team, because we certainly weren't going to win. So we might as well have fun, right? So uh, indeed, uh, we did not win that much. We weren't the worst team, but we were definitely not in contention for first place. And one particular game exemplifies that fact with one glowing exception. Uh, We were down in the points. In fact, we were quite down. We were on defense, standing in our end zone. The offense had the ball, uh, won the first or second yard line there. We were in danger of once again being scored upon. When my friend Rob called timeout. Now, timeout is, is normal to be called for, for, you know, maybe the offense would plan something or whatever, but, but defensive timeouts, that doesn't happen a whole lot. And what happened next hardly ever happens. My friend Rob called a defensive huddle. Now, a huddle, that's, that's where you gather all the players around in a circle and, and, and you, you talk strategy. And again, usually this is an offensive thing, not a defensive thing, but we're the Moombas and we're having a good time, so we gather in a huddle. huddle. And we looked to Rob, he said, well, what do you want? He said, okay, here's the plan. When their center hikes the ball to their quarterback, the quarterback is going to drop back in the pocket. He's going to look, and then he's going to, he's going to pass it straight down the middle. When he does so, I am going to leap in the air and block the shot, block the pass. And I'm going to block that ball right into, and then he points to another guy in the huddle, right into your hands, so be ready. Now, normal people would think, how do you know that? (laughs) And if you know that, why didn't you tell us all the other plays for the rest of the season when we were losing so badly, right? But we're the Moombas. And so we break. And our guy goes out to the side here. Rob lines up in the middle. Kid you not, true story. They snap the ball. The quarterback dropped back in the pocket, looks left, looks right, passes straight down the middle. Rob, who has the benefit of being six foot seven with the wingspan of the Titanic, jumps up and he swats the ball, and I kid you not, right into the waiting arms of our teammate. Now, the story should end where our guy runs all the way and scores a touchdown. We win the championship and we have t shirt. No, none of that happened. I think we lost the game just like we normally did. But for just the tiny little ripple in, in, in the fabric of time that that little story made, I think it nonetheless illustrates quite well a profound truth. Sometimes the only way to get done what needs to be done is to huddle up. And what's true in football is sometimes even more true in the church. Sometimes to get done what needs to be done in the church can only get done when we huddle up. If you have a Bible, take a look, please, at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17. 
First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17. While you are looking that up, let me just briefly remind you where we have been in this series. This is part four, and the final part of this series entitled The Shot of a Lifetime. In part one, we learned what the shot of a lifetime is. The shot of a lifetime is not getting a dunk in a big game or hitting a home run or becoming rich or famous, as important as those things may be. The shot of a lifetime is coming to know Jesus Christ as your personal friend and Savior. There's nothing better than that. There's, there's, there's nothing beyond it. It's the highest privilege that a human being can have. It is the ultimate. It is the shot of a lifetime. We also talked in those early parts about unity, that Jesus has called us to this, imme- this immense level of unity. Jesus prayed, you know, John chapter 17, Father, may they be one as we are one, I in you and you in me. Wow, that's sky-high unity. And we learned that that unity is not merely for the blessings of fellowship inside of the church, as good as those can be. It is primarily a blessing. It's a launching pad for discipleship, for helping other people to also know Jesus Christ as their personal friend and Savior. We looked in in part two about how this is an individual call. God has called each one of us. Each one of us has been doused in the blessings of God, dripping wet with the blessings of God. Of course, the responsibility and the privilege, the joy of making disciples lies with each one of us. And last week, we talked in part three about these specific ways to reach other people for Jesus. We looked at spiritual gifts a little bit. We looked at creativity and the creativity that God calls us to, to reach other people for him, which brings us to part four. First Thessalonians 5, 17, very short verse. And my guess is, uh, in this, those of you listening right now, if you have your Bibles open, there's enough unanimity amongst the various translations that we can kind of do this one together. Uh, what's the first word of that verse? Pray. That's right. Pray without what? Ceasing. Pray without ceasing. Let me put that up here. First Thessalonians 5, 17, pray without ceasing. Now, the pray part, we would expect, Right? Even an atheist, if he walks into a church and cracks open a Bible, expects to see the word pray at some point, right? It's just part of, the, part of the religious Christian drill. But pray without ceasing. Without ceasing. I mean, how many things do you do without ceasing, right? I remember when my daughters were, were three years old, respectively, at different times. It seemed that sometimes they would ask questions without ceasing, right? You know, Daddy, what? Daddy, ah, uh, you know. The only thing generally that we do without ceasing is breathing. What happens when you stop breathing long enough? Yeah, yeah. In other words, the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, was inspired to put praying on that level, life or death. Ladies and gentlemen, I would submit to you that this is the holy huddle Prayer is the holy huddle that God is calling us to continually, perpetually. In the original language, it means without gaps. Don't stop. Don't let let there be a gap. Always have an attitude of prayer. This is the holy huddle. God is calling us together into this huddle, sometimes as a corporate body, sometimes in smaller groups, sometimes just us, just, just me and God, you and God together. This holy huddle And he says, do it without ceasing. Wow. (laughs) And inquiring minds want to know, why? Why? 
Why put such a sky-high value that you would call for prayer, this holy huddle of prayer, not just once, not just twice, but 24-7, 365? Why? What is it that happens in that holy huddle that is so good that God asks us to do it continually? I think there's at least three reasons that the Bible gives, three answers to that question. Let's do some digging. Acts chapter 10, verse 1, please. Acts chapter 10, verse 1. And we are talking about discipleship, reaching other people for Jesus, using unity in in our midst as a springboard to help other people to know Jesus Christ. Now, what we're going to read here in Acts chapter 10, this is definitely a discipleship environment that we're jumping into here. You see, the early Christian church, for all of the blessings and, and, the, and the wonder, the miracles, I mean, Acts chapter 2, Pentecost comes, the Holy Spirit is pulled out, Peter preaches for three minutes and 28 seconds, and 3,000 people are baptized, miracles are being done, there's these incredible divine conflicts that take place amongst Christians and the religious rulers and that. It's an amazing time to be alive, but for all of its blessedness, the early Christian church had a profound discipleship problem. And it's about to be addressed. Acts chapter 10, verse 1. says, At Caesarea, this is on the coast there of Palestine, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and... What's that next word there? Prayed and prayed... To God regularly. Now, this, is not, this man is not a Christian, as we'll find out here, at least not at this point in the story. He's not a Christian, but obviously he believes in God, probably a semi-convert to Judaism, but he's a Gentile. That comes important later in the story. Verse 3, one day at about 3 in the afternoon, he had a vision. Later on, we would learn this is during his regular prayer time. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius, Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He asked. The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now, send men to Joppa, that was south on the coast there, to bring back a man named Simon who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. Now pause for just a moment. Let's be clear about this. This came about because of prayer. Cornelius, though he's not a Christian, is in prayer. He is in prayer regularly. Again, if we were to read further in the chapter, we would see that. And it's in the context of prayer here that the next thing happens. Notice carefully here. Verse 9. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to what? To pray. Okay, so he's doing the same thing here, to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles of the earth and birds of the air. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Now, if you want to offend any self-respecting Jew, tell him this. Okay. Let down a sheet, 
containing probably some clean meat animals, but reptiles, no. That is not appearing on the dinner plate of any kosher Jewish restaurant that you or I know of, okay? And so in answer to this command, rise up, get out your steak fork, cut off a slice here, have lunch, Peter says the only thing that probably most Jews of his day would say. He said, get it, Peter, kill and eat. Verse 14, surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. Hmm. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out, asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The first reason that God asks us to regularly huddle with Him in prayer is that when we pray, Christ leads. When we pray, Christ leads. Why did the Spirit here during Peter's prayer time, why did the Spirit have to say, Peter, go ahead and go downstairs. Don't be afraid to go with those guys. Why did He have to say that? Because Peter was a... Jew and they were Gentiles, exactly. Now, now, this Jewish custom of the day was pretty strong, pretty universal. Uh, They did not socialize with Gentiles. Uh, They saw them definitely as the enemy almost all the time. And so these Gentiles come. So God has to guide him here, and it's a really, really good thing that the Spirit did. In fact, had Peter not been praying, had Cornelius not been praying, it's quite possible that you and I would not be sitting here today. Because you see, up to that point, for all the blessedness of the early Christian church, they had one major problem. They still assumed that salvation was just for the Jews. You know, Jesus said to the woman at the well, uh, salvation is from the Jews. But the disciples in the early Christian church extrapolated that a little too far and essentially limited salvation to those that were Jews. But when Jesus died on the cross, remember we read this earlier on, if I am lifted up, I will draw all people to me. The church hadn't learned it yet. So in the most dramatic fashion, God in prayer with Peter goes after his stomach. (laughs) If you want to mess with somebody, mess with their plate, okay? They they will remember it. They, they, They will pay attention, right? Feed your kid green beans. When they don't like green beans, you'll hear about it. Even to this day, I won't tell you what, but if you serve me a certain vegetable, I will not eat it, okay? right? If you want to mess with somebody, mess with their plate. This was a huge tenet of Judaism. One of the identifying marks in those days is that they did not eat those foods. And God uses this not to make every meat clean. Some people wrongly use this story to say that every single meat now is clean. You can eat pork, you can eat snake, you can eat cockroach, cockroach, scorpions, etc. No, 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 no. Leviticus 11 was written before there was a Jewish nation. It's a human thing, not a Jewish thing. Instead, Peter himself confesses later in the chapter, God has shown me that I should call no man unclean. 
no person unclean. And let it sink in and sink in well. If Cornelius had not been a man of prayer, if Peter had not been a man of prayer, if they had not been praying that day, then it is quite likely that the Gentiles, certainly not in the way here, they would never have been reached in this fashion. Cornelius, as later happened, would never have become a Christian. The baptism of the Holy Spirit would not have come. And again, you and I may not be sitting here today because we're Gentiles. And praise the Lord, the gospel came our way because somebody prayed. When we pray, Christ leads. And when we think about discipleship, when we think about reaching other people, this story illustrates in spades that we must be a praying people. You know, when we are in a discipleship situation, those of you that have sought to share your faith before, it is so important to hear the whisperings of the Spirit, is it not? You need to know when to open your mouth. You need to know when to keep your mouth shut. You need to remember things that you did not remember before, but they were stashed there, and the Spirit taps your brain on its shoulder and says, hey, remember this? You need to say this at this point. The Spirit can put you in locations that you would not otherwise be. You need to be praying if you are seeking to disciple others for Jesus. Now, one quick caveat here. This is not a sermon on Bible study, but if it were, I would say this. If you study your Bible, but you don't pray, you're dangerous. If you only pray and you don't study your Bible, you're dangerous. If you only study your Bible, but you don't pray, then you have no soul. You have no connection with living connection with Jesus Christ. And so you become a legalist. You become a Pharisee. Very well known for your theoretical knowledge, but no substance. And you're dangerous. But if you only pray and you don't study your Bible, let's be honest, every now and then, we don't hear correctly. And the Bible is there to bring us back to reality. It's a corrective, okay? So the two need to go together, right? And if you are studying your Bible, and if you are praying, and if you are seeking to reach other people for Jesus, great things can happen. For when we pray, Christ leads. And that whispering voice is there to guide us along the discipleship path. And again, Peter most likely would never have heard God's very explicit discipling instructions except that he was in the habit of prayer. So let me just ask you, in the quietness of your own mind, how is your hearing? I don't mean your physical hearing. I mean your spiritual hearing. How is your sense of hearing? Are you praying regularly? Are you in prayer with God? Are you not just speaking, but are you listening as well? Are you huddling with Jesus? Are you praying that he might speak and guide and, yes, lead, not just in your life, but in the lives of those you are seeking to help to know Jesus? Ladies and gentlemen, there is no substitute for this. You can't fake God, (laughs) You can't fake genuine spiritual results. I mean, you know, people may look at, your, at the outside and may wonder certain things, but when it comes to sharing Jesus with others, you can't fake results like that. There's only one path, and it's in the holy huddle of prayer. And praise the Lord that we can huddle with Jesus and that when we do so, he will lead as we make disciples for him. That's the first reason to huddle in prayer with Jesus. There is a second. Take a look, please, at Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. Isaiah, the sixth chapter, verse 1. 
This is certainly one of my favorite portions of the book of Isaiah and indeed of the Old Testament. This is talking about Isaiah's official call, commission into God's work. He's already been functioning as a prophet in the first five chapters here. But this takes it to a whole new level. And he's going to talk here in verse 1 about a guy by the name of Uzziah, King Uzziah. King Uzziah had reigned for more than 50 years and uh, had been one of the primary bulwarks against Assyrian incursions into Palestine. And he's just died. This was a time of great uncertainty. Israel, Judah, people did not know what the future held. Was there disaster on the horizon? Were they about to be overrun? Isaiah is wondering the same thing. And that's where we join the story. Isaiah 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. You know, there are times when I am glad that the Bible is a written document rather than a video. Uh, Book of Judges comes to mind. But there are times when when I wish I could at least see a little video clip because this must have been astonishing. <laughs> Can you picture this? Isaiah, is, uh, the spirit of prophecy tells us he was in the outer court when he is given this vision, this vision of, of, of God Almighty descending into his temple. And this is more than the Shekinah glory that was, it was hovering over the mercy seat there in the most holy place. This is, this is more than that. There's some more detail here. This doesn't happen very often in Scripture where God shows up and, the, and there are details, discernible details of his person. This is one of them. God is there high and exalted on his throne. In other words, he's in control. This is a place of leadership on that throne. And the train of his robe fills, I mean, what must that be? You know, we, we have weddings, right? And, and there's long trains on the, on the bride's dress. None of them have filled the temple. <laughs> but God's does. And these seraphs are there, these holy, righteous, sinless beings. These, these angels are there, they're hovering. With two of their wings, they're covering their faces, even in their sinless, righteous state, never having sinned, untainted by corruption and selfishness. They consider themselves unworthy to view this, so their faces are covered, their feet are covered in respect, they're hovering with the other wings, and apparently the only thing that is fitting for this occasion is to speak those words, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. And so powerful are the words and the presence of God that they saturate the building to the point of destruction because that's what it means. You know, if if the doorposts and and the jams and the frames on my house are rattling, something, this is not good. Something's about to happen. The very foundations of the temple of the living God are in danger of giving way beneath the weight of the awesomeness, the grandeur, and the holiness of God. Now, what would you say at that moment if you were Isaiah? Well, what did he say? 
verse 5. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Let's be real clear about this, what's happening here. I think this is one of the major reasons why people don't genuinely pray. Because sometimes what we find in prayer, genuine prayer, not not just, you know, thanking God for the food, etc. Genuine, honest prayer. Sometimes one of the first things we find when we honestly pray is bad news. Because when we pray, we are naked before God. There are no secrets in prayer. God sees it all. And if you are being honest with him, he will show you. He will reflect that back to you. You cannot help but see yourself as you truly are if you genuinely engage in prayer. I think this is why some people don't pray. To which I would say that is a profound tragedy because God is not interested in showing your flaws or mine just to lord it over us. God is not interested in showing you your weaknesses simply to make you feel bad. Far from it. In fact, the only reason that God reveals our true, filthy, sinful state is that he might set us free from that very thing. That's why he does it. Don't shy away from that that, that bad news that comes in prayer. It is your doorway to paradise. It is your stepping stone to righteousness, to being set free in Jesus Christ. And indeed, this is exactly what Isaiah finds. Verse 6. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, here am I. Send me. In the space of a prayer, Isaiah goes from being a spiritual loser to being a missionary for God. A second reason that God calls us to huddle in prayer so often is simply this. When we pray... Our fears flee. You know, there's so many lessons that we could pull from this little story of Isaiah. I think this is one of the better ones. When we pray, our fears flee because they cannot bear up under the weight of the atoning power of Jesus Christ. When we are honest in prayer with our fears, God knows exactly how to melt them with the brightness of his presence. This is what prayer, one of the things that prayer is for. And notice carefully, it's again specifically a discipleship context. Isaiah, when he had this renewal experience in prayer, he is immediately sent out to disciple others. Who will go for us, God says. Isaiah, now refreshed. Here I am, Lord. I'm ready now. Send me. One of the biggest reasons that people don't share their faith is because they're afraid. You know, we talked about this briefly a few weeks ago. They're afraid they won't say the right thing, that they won't have the right answer. Somebody's going to stump them. They're going to mess up. They're going to, you know, stub their toe and swear. Something's going to go wrong, right? And so they're afraid of it, and so they don't witness. 
What fears are holding you back from sharing Jesus with others? What are they? And whatever they are, may I gently challenge you. Don't let another day go by. Bring them to Jesus. Lay them out clearly. Tell him honestly what they are. And let him take them away. Because it is in prayer that God works, that Jesus works. When we pray, our fears flee. So second reason that Christ asked us to huddle with him in prayer. There is a third and final one for today. Psalm chapter 34, please, verse 4. Psalm 34, verse 4. It's a psalm of David. At a time in his life, uh, he had fled from King Abimelech, pretended to be insane. It was a a tumultuous, chaotic time. Uh, David was not feeling confident. And so he sought a solution, and he found one. Verse 4, Psalm 34, verse 4. David says, I sought the Lord, and he answered me. Does that sound like prayer to you? Yeah, it it, it does to me. This is prayer. David prays. He's in trouble. He's uncertain. He's unsure. He doesn't know what the future holds. So he prays. I sought the Lord, and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. That's what we just learned. Delivered me from all my fears in prayer. Verse 5, those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man, probably tapping on his chest there, called and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he delivers them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. (laughs) David went from being uncertain and hesitant to being bold and confident, and that transformation all started when he prayed. A third reason that Christ longs to huddle with us and pray so often is that when we pray, lives are changed. And not just ours, but others too. A final story. And I am going to intentionally change some of the details, the identifying details of this story so that you hopefully will not be able to identify the people that are involved. But the substance of the story is absolutely true. Many years ago, I was traveling on the West Coast. I was in California. And unbeknownst to me, a friend of mine knew that I was traveling through that particular part of California. A pastor friend of mine, he calls me up and said, hey, I see that you're in our area here. Hi, how are you? And can we get together right away? He said, well, sure, good to hear from you. What's up? We met together, and he shared with me what was up. And indeed, it was quite serious. He explained that, uh, that they had a uh, local grade school and, and uh, uh, Adventist high school there at Academy. And there was a group of about seven students. They had matriculated through all of those years. They had graduated a few years ago, and had kind of gone away from the church. Uh, not much interest in spiritual things, kind of gotten into the wrong circles, some drinking, etc. that was going on there. And then one day, somebody in that group suggested that they uh, get a game. Now, I'm not going to give much details on it. Those of you that are aware of such things, you'll, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. But there, there is a game. Uh, it is uh, sadly uh, readily available where you can ask questions of the game and it supposedly will give you answers back on, on, on these topic, any topic that you choose. Uh, well, they, they got it. They got that game. And they knew better. They had gone through, as they say, our, our schools. But they thought, well, surely this can't be 
that dangerous. They began to ask questions of the game, and and the game answered. You know, the devil loves half-truths, or even 90% truth. If he can just put 10% deadly error in there, he's happy. He's happy, okay? Bald-faced lies, rarely, rarely told by the devil, okay? And so he begins to give answers, and the answers are incredibly accurate. for these. Wow, this is interesting. Well, ask him this, or ask him that. And pretty soon the game is beginning to give directions back. Now, this is just pure and simple. This is a tool of the devil, okay? And if you are dabbling in the occult, and you can hear my voice right now, if you are dabbling in the occult and you think that you can control what is happening, you are wrong. You are absolutely wrong. Every single story of people who, quote, dabble in the occult, you stick in it long enough, you cannot get out of your own accord, as you're about to see. The game told them to go to a cemetery. They went to the cemetery. They went to a certain grave. They went to the grave. And they were asked to call someone, and they did. And out of the grave came, quote, a ghost. Now, we know that there are no such thing as ghosts. Amen? We know what the Bible has to say. Ecclesiastes 9, 5, and 6, among other texts in the Bible, you know, the dead, living know that they shall die, but the, uh, the living know they shall die, but the dead know... Nothing. Zero zip. Nada. When you're dead, you're dead. It's like a dreamless sleep. You can't have any communication with anybody who's still living. That's what the Bible says. But we also know that the Bible says that the devil can impersonate the dead. And sadly, with a great amount of, of, of accuracy. And so there's a demon impersonating this dead person. And uh, the dead person begins to get quite aggressive, this demon, and making requests. And by now, these students are terrified, absolutely terrified. And when they refused what this evil spirit asked, uh, one of the young adults was possessed. Again, if you play with fire, you will get burned. They called my pastor friend, who called me, and said, yeah, let's go right away. We met with this group of young adults at a local Adventist church there. We went to the front pew, and they were carrying their friend. The, the friend, essentially, from the time that, 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 that at that cemetery, he was, he, was like, he, was like, he was breathing, but he could not communicate, couldn't open his eyes, could not control his movements. They carried him from place to place. They carried him into the church. They, said they put him there on the front pew. He just kind of flopped there on the pew. And we huddled. We prayed. We pled the blood of Jesus Christ. You know, the one thing the devil hates more than anything else is the blood of Jesus Christ. We can can pray for all manner of blessings. The devil doesn't like that either. But the one thing he knows that says game up for you, Satan, is the blood of Jesus Christ. When Jesus was on that cross, what were his final words? It is is finished. Now, the great controversy wasn't quite finished yet, but the end had been secured. And when you plead the blood of Jesus Christ, the devil has no option but to leave. And so we we prayed, we prayed there with our holy huddle. And and the young man stirred a little bit. He stirred, he opened his eyes a little bit and closed them again. And it came in my mind the very story that we read here a couple Sabbaths ago. You remember Jesus when he met the, the man who had lesion inside of him. And he commanded him to come out and then this conversation took place. There was a little delay. We huddled again. We began to pray. And we pled the blood of Jesus Christ, asking by the power of his Holy Spirit that the blood of Jesus Christ, and we commanded that demon to leave. And after several minutes of praying, he did. And that young man was set free. 
opened his eyes. He blinked. Did not know where he was. <laughs> we reminded him of the circumstances. And he, yes, I, I remember. I remember. Ladies and gentlemen, when we pray, lives are changed. Prayer itself is not a thing, but God is, and he works through prayer. That holy huddle of being with him, there's nothing magic about mouthing, making words you know, with your mouth that's supposedly an attitude of prayer, but there is great power in Jesus Christ. And he has chosen in these holy huddles to give his power, to change people's lives there. Some of you may be thinking, but Pastor Shane, that was an extreme example. I mean, that's demon possession. That's, that's like one of the most extreme forms of discipleship you could ever imagine. Hear it and hear it well. Every conversion is a miracle. <laughs> Whether you are possessed by a demon or just distracted from spiritual things like millions of people in this country, every conversion is a miracle. We would like to think, I mean, wouldn't it be great if we could just smile and be nice and have clean restrooms on a Sabbath morning and people would be baptized? Wouldn't that be great? Now, we need clean restrooms, and you please smile when a guest comes in. But if their hearts are to be changed, I can't do it. You can't do it. Only Jesus can. And that is why when we are seeking to reach other people for Jesus, we must pray. We must pray. We must intercede for them. I don't understand all the rules of the great controversy. All I know is that there are times when I don't pray and there's no progress spiritually with someone I'm seeking to reach. And then there are times when I remember and I pray and I intercede and things happen in that person's life. And I've seen people become Christians and join the church because other people were interceding for them in prayer. So again, I ask you, how is it with you? How is it with you in the holy huddle? Are you a disciple maker for Christ who prays every now and then? Or are you a disciple maker for Christ that lives a life of prayer? Throughout this series, we have seen in multiple places that Christ is calling us to unity. And as we learned a few Sabbaths ago, unity is actually a location. It is found by the church only as we are found at Jesus' wounded side. And prayer turns out to be how we travel to that location. Ellen White has that famous phrase in Steps to Christ. Prayer does not bring God down to us, but rather brings us up to God, right to the very side of Christ. And as we are united as a church, as a campus, as as a worldwide body, as we are united, we seek to share Jesus with other people. And to do those two things successfully, to be united and to share Jesus with others, we must have Christ leading and his courage and his power to change lives, all of which flow freely to the soul that frequently and regularly lives in prayer with Jesus Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, this is not a flag football game. This is the great controversy. This is the kingdom of God, and eternity is on the line. So please, let us unite in Christ. Let us use that as a springboard to make disciples for him. And let us pray together, individually, corporately, regularly, throughout the day, each day, that we may have what we need to let the world know that their friend and Savior, Jesus Christ, has come, and that by God's grace, they too might make the shot of a lifetime.